We are concluding or ending a series, this, this long-running conversation we've been having, a series called Be Prepared. And that for us, we really feel like there's a preparation that we've been called to do as followers of Christ that as we look at our, the reason, the heart for this message was, or the series, was because we were looking at a culture currently, again, kind of in the chaos and, 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 and drastic shifts of, um, uh, of, uh, of moving further and further away from God and feeling like it moves further and further away from what we believe uh, the Bible calls us to. There are a lot of reasons for that, but we wanted to go back and look at what are Christians still called to do? What is part of some of the, the, the Christian response uh, in the midst of this? And some of this, I think it's a little confusing because of some misunderstood terms and some misunderstood things that have kind of been in the church for several, for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. But this idea of what we call evangelism and apologetics. Now, this has been around, been around since the dawn of the church, but, it's, but it's, the, it's the way in which we've kind of adopted our understanding of it that's been a little confusing. Evangelism, kind of that idea of just like, you know, beating on doors and cold calling people. And I mean, again, I've seen God use some incredible things using EE and other things. But um, this idea of street preachers and kind of like that, it's a special person that kind of, kind of can do that. That's not really true. Uh, same thing with apologetics. Apologetics aren't just for scholars or teachers or professors or people who, you know, kind of have all this amount of wealth of knowledge to kind of make a case or make a defense for, for what they believe. And you're kind of thinking immediately like term paper kind of thing. Like that's, that's not really what apologetics, I mean, it can be in terms of, you know, there's, apo there's apologists who have taken incredibly deep concepts and, and, and bring so much to the table. You can learn a lot uh, from them, but it's not necessarily in terms of what all Christians are called to, because we believe that all Christians are called to, to do these two things. And, and so we try to make it as simple as we can, you know, not to take away the, the, the but to remove some of the complexity. It doesn't take away the call or the charge, but it removes the complexity of what we misunderstand to just this idea of we're called to share the good news of who Jesus Christ is. That's, everybody's called to do that. We're also all called to respond with a reason why. Okay? To, re to respond with the reason why we believe what we believe. Not necessarily, you know, you can't always explain your whole worldview, but specifically in our theme verse, uh, Peter challenges all of us, all believers, to, uh, and I'm going to read it for you real quickly, to uh, worship Christ as Lord of your life. Like this is the foundation of what we do. We worship Christ as Lord of our life because he is Lord of our life. And then we always need to be prepared we always need to make a pre-decision, if you will, to be prepared so we can give an answer to anyone who ever asks us to give a reason for the hope that you have, right? Like the charge to the church is you need to be prepared so that you can give a reason for the hope that you have. This isn't about winning a debate. You know, this isn't about winning some argument on Facebook or social media, like, you know, because you need to convince someone of the hope they need to have. We're talking about like an apologetist, or apologist is sharing the hope that they have, which is what we're called to do. Share the hope that you have in Jesus. Now, I did share this um, over the last few weeks that uh, apologetics begins and ends with Scripture. All right? It's not that we don't use you know, philosophical arguments or logic or other ways in which to get into the conversation. Again, uh, apologists of the first and second century were kind of known for that in terms of taking Greek philosophy and, you know, kind of making a case for Christianity. But it's always going to come back to Scripture, but it's got to begin with Scripture in you, 
okay? When I talk about your apologetics, your reason why you believe what you believe, it has to start with Scripture in you in terms of what does the Bible mean to you? What does it look like? We spent our first week looking at that. And this is where, again, Paul tells Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness. I love those four words, right? It's useful to teach us the things we don't know, because I mean, I'm, I'm in my 40s, there's lots of things I still don't know, and I continue to learn what I don't know. It, it, it rebukes us because we need something to tell us we're wrong. There's an absolute truth. We have to be told when we're wrong or we have wrong thinking. And then the reality is we also need correction. It needs to correct our thinking, correct our perspective, correct uh, the things that are wrong. And that's the part of scripture that talks about the renewing of your mind. And then it trains us, right? It equips us. It prepares us for the things we need to be prepared for, especially when it comes to the righteousness of God and being made right with God. Now, what I shared the first couple weeks was that these are three things we're going to always come back to in our preparation. This is what we wanted to teach you as a church in terms of how to be better prepared. First was that Jesus, as the resurrected Savior, is the only way. Why? Because he said, I'm the the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is the most exclusive truth we have, but it's the most inclusive exclusive truth. I mean, because the invitation is for all to believe that he is the only way. Last week, we spent some time talking about this understanding and acceptance of mercy and grace, that God doesn't measure sin kind of the way we measure things. And, you know, you have to go back and listen to all of that. (laughs) I give some visuals just about where we get stuck in some of our perception and perspective of morality and sin and what we call sin. Versus how God sees things. And and in order to really understand and accept the mercy that we've been given and the grace of God, we do have to have an understanding of acceptance of how he views sin. And then the third, which is this week, is this unexplainable personal transformation. Now, this is a little strange because if you were to just take apologetics at its surface level, you know, this conversation we're going to have today almost doesn't feel like it belongs in terms of apologetics, because apologetics is supposed to be about kind of making a case, having information to make a case and an argument for the things you believe what you believe. But I personally feel like this is sort of the secret weapon, if you will. Okay. Not that we're like snipers or, you know, trying to hide out or anything like that, but it's the secret weapon in terms of what is it about your choice to make Christ as Lord of your life that you can share, that when you're sharing the good news and having your response to the reason why, what is sort of this unexplainable part? You're going to move past what's explainable to this unexplainable thing in order to, I really think, be as effective as you've, we've been called to be in terms of sharing faith and, and responding with the reason why. So let me start today by giving you a quick example. Uh, this is going to be a sports illustration, which is fun because I don't normally do sports uh, illustrations. And uh, don't let it fool you. It's going to be the most nerdy sports illustration you've ever heard in your life, all right? Just ask Ken. He's wearing his football jersey today to give a sports illustration. I'm sure sure there's better ones. Um, But this is a a quick sports illustration for you to talk a little bit about this concept, all right? Uh, There's a guy named Robert Adair. He's a Yale physicist. And several years ago, we're talking the last 30 years, he, he started to study the science and the physics Uh, in baseball, lots of different areas of baseball. You can Google this guy's name, Robert Adair, A-D-E-R-E, 
And um, you'll find all sorts of incredible things. But he, he spent some time working on the physics of the fastball, right? The fastball in terms of, in terms of at this time early on, you know, it was sort of like 90 miles an hour was a huge feat. I know that's not such a big a deal now. Everybody throws over 90 now, but it was a huge deal, right? So what he was saying, he kind of started to break it out. He said, look, the ball at 90 miles an hour, a 90 mile an hour fastball, it travels a little over 60 feet from the, you know, the, the pitcher's hand over home plate. It travels in a little less than half a second, if you can believe that. I mean, if you've ever watched baseball, you, you get that, right? A little less than half a second, 400 uh, milliseconds. But what's amazing, if you go look at it, is he breaks all the, 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 the little parts down that you and I would never break, break down. Um, the f- half of that half a second is spent with just the guy trying to figure out where the ball is. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, I mean, I, have to, I can't barely read in the dark anymore. I mean, that's, I mean, I get that right now, right? Like, half of that half, half a second, less than half a second, is spent just trying to find it and make the decision as to whether you're going to swing all in 200 milliseconds. Like, right, I, that first 200 milliseconds is huge. Then the next 100 milliseconds is based on where your swing, you know, where your swing is going to be, because it could be high, low, inside or outside the, the pocket, you know, the, the strike zone. So it dep- it's going to, your placement of where you're going to put the bat is decided in that next 100 milliseconds. And then, of course, as he breaks down the swing itself, again, whole bunch of information, but overall it takes 150 milliseconds, right? The first 50, a batter can still choose whether to back out of it or not. But after a certain point, after the first 50 milliseconds, he's at 70% of force of what he's going to swing. Now, there's a 0.007% margin of error based on the variables that, you know, this physicist actually did the work and did. But the most amazing thing is this, and he, and he says this in his own research, that his conclusion in terms of how fastballs work and how, how it looks to try to hit a fastball, he, his conclusion was this, this is a superhuman feat, that it should be impossible to hit a fastball. Everybody with me? And based on his record and based on his findings, like, you know, that would be all he could come up with. His conclusion is that this is not possible. Now, you and I are not smart enough to argue. Well, Dan might be. He's an old physicist. But, you know, we might not be able to argue the, the physics with him and the math with him, but none of us would agree with his findings, would we? Like, none of us would look at his findings and say, and say agree with that. Why? Just say it out loud. Why, why would you not agree with that? Because <laughs> it happens, right? Because we've seen it happen thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Like, the fact that you can't explain it through your physics and math and everything else in terms of how you broke it down doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. And that is where we sort of get into this concept of the unexplainable, right? The unexplainable. There are things that we deal with that certainly just seem to be, especially depending on how you look at it, unexplainable. And when it comes to your faith and when it comes to this, hear me say it out loud, like I'm getting ready to talk a little bit about some of the questions we get stuck on. Don't hear me say that questions aren't important. We, we love questions. We think people should bring their questions to God and, 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 and you know wrestle with questions their whole life if they need to. Questions aren't unimportant, but the problem is is that for so many people, they get stuck in sort of this death loop of questions of the unexplainable in their mind. They can't seem to overcome that which they need an explanation for. And oftentimes, 
These are the two questions that, that sort of this death loop kind of, kind of come, comes around. It's what about and how could? And maybe you've experienced this, okay? So maybe you've shared your faith and it's with somebody in your top five and you shared it with a you know, family member and you've had this conversation. And as soon as you mention faith or church or God or whatever, like it, it's almost like a, a, a switch is flipped, you know? And all of a sudden the stuff comes out, right? Well, what about that crazy Genesis book? And what about this? And what about the flood, you know? And what about all that poetry stuff? And what about when he killed nations and wiped things off the face of the earth? And what about the crusades? And what about all the hatred and bigotry in Jesus' name and blah, blah? I mean, all the whatabouts, you know? And then the how could? Well, how could he let bad things happen to good people? How come good things happen to bad people? right? How could he let that happen to grandma? How could he, you know, and, and I'm just telling you, like, and I, I know you've probably experienced this. You get in this death loop of whatabouts and, 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 you know, and how could this happen? And for a lot of people, they get stuck there. And I'll, listen, if you're, you're an analytical thinker, it's, I know it's harder because that, you know, there's just so much sometimes that is, lives in that unexplainable world. Now, I personally think that a great deal of things can be explained given enough time information and energy put on someone's part. You can walk through some explanations, but the reality is this. Most of us aren't going to get there, and most of the people we share our faith with and share the reason why we believe we believe aren't going to get there immediately either. So there, I believe there's a way to kind of move past this, not, not because it's not important, but to help people not get stuck, and that is to wrestle two questions to the ground that I think are more important right? The two, these two questions are, who is and what happened? Who is and what happened? See, our faith, the Christian faith, when we live with Christ as Lord of our life, these are the, these are the two questions we have wrestled to the ground. Because Christianity is not a philosophy, it's not a religion, it's not a religious practice, okay? It's not, it's not based off of just good teaching, like there was a guy who had some great teaching and, you know, he died and all his followers were like, you know, let's, let's tell everybody he was alive and carry the dream alive, you know, because the teachings are so good and they work. And our faith really is, you know, the foundation of our faith really isn't even our faith. Did you know that? It, just because we believe it's true doesn't make it true. Just because we believe it's right doesn't make it right. So our foundation of our faith isn't necessarily even our faith. The foundation for Christianity is the answer to these two questions. Who is he? Who is? And what happened? Right? What happened that changed everything? And whether that's going straight to just the understanding of Jesus and the resurrected Savior, or whether that's just to helping people understand you know, the encounter you've had, you can move people from the unexplainable to the undeniable. You can. You can move people from the unexplainable to what is undeniable. I cannot explain to you, given the math and anything else I know about Robert Adair trying to figure out that we can't hit a fastball. All I know is there is undeniable proof every single day that people can hit a fastball. Not your head if you're with me. And I believe the same is true for our faith, which is why, again, I think, I think this is why it's got to be a part of our apologetics. It's got to be a part of our reason 
why we believe what we believe and how we share that with everybody else. So I'm going to walk us through a, an encounter today. This is an encounter with, um, with uh, Peter and John, okay? Peter, who penned our, uh, our um, theme verse in 1 Peter. Peter, one of the disciples, John the disciple. Um, this is a, an encounter that they had shortly after the resurrection and the ascension. So this is the very early, early movements of the church. It's after Pentecost, where everybody heard their la- own language and all sorts of amazing things. Um, but there's an encounter that we're going to read about in the Acts of the Church or the Acts of the Apostles uh, that Luke sort of journaled for us uh, that happened to Peter and John. And we're going to spend our lion's share of our time just walking through this idea of moving past the unexplainable into the undeniable. Let's go here. Acts 3, if you want to follow along. In your, we're going to read Acts 3, parts of Acts 3 and Acts 4. This says, Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer service. Aren't we so glad we don't have a three o'clock prayer service? And it's just, it's just, just two normal times, you know, like 9-11, like good Americans, right? But this is, this is an all-day thing at the temple because they had to get people in and out, which is understandable. Well, as they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so that he could beg the people going into the temple. Now, later on, you'll find out he's 40 years old. This man's been lame since birth and more than likely was probably born to a wealthy family or um, had some means or somebody graciously sort of, because he wouldn't have made it other, otherwise in that culture, but yet probably a part of a, of a home of, of people with disabilities or things like that. Like, you know, they still have to take him to the temple every day in order to survive and live <clears throat> off of the mercy and, and, and gifts, you know, uh, uh, from people that would give to the poor, give to the handicapped. So he sees Peter and John about to enter, and he asks them for some money. Okay, so this guy asks him for some money. And it goes on to say that um, Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, look at us. Now, I don't know what he meant by that, other than sometimes I think Peter and John, they were just normal guys. They were fishermen, for crying out loud. They'd been spending, they spent three and a half years with Jesus. They weren't like making tons of money. I assume it's because they didn't look like, you know, wealthy people. Like they didn't look like they probably had a ton to give, you know? Um, uh, and so he said, look at us. Well, the guy, the layman looked eagerly, right? Maybe because he got their attention. Maybe because he's asking everybody. And he asked Peter and John. Now Peter and John have kind of responded to him. So like, Oh, you know, he's going to get some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. I love this description. That Peter took the lame man by the right hand. He helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. I just love this, the picture that Luke gives us of detail, like, they weren't just healed, right? And then, you know, he had to go through six months of rehab like the rest of us have to do, right? It wasn't just healed. They were healed and strengthened. Like, imagine, imagine immediately your legs were back to your prime. I know some of you guys are there, but it's not me. And so imagine they were, you know, back to your prime, like healed and strengthened immediately as he stood up. <laughs> and then Luke gives us the example, like, look, he jumped up. You know, he leaped, he, he stood up on his feet, he began to walk, he was walking and leaping, right? Think, you know, think skipping and leaping, praising God. 
as he went into the temple with him. And the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. Keep going. And when they realized he was the lame beggar they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were, read the words out loud, absolutely astounded. You, you would too, right? This is, this is what they saw. Like, he would have been at that point probably like cultural wallpaper. Like Every day at a certain point, they probably saw him there. You know, it's Thursday. He'll probably be at the afternoon, you know, three o'clock prayer time. And they would have known that and they would have seen him and people would have probably sometimes been able to give him something and sometimes, you know, they wouldn't have been able to give him so they kind of, you know, walked on the other side. You know how you do that, right? Like you just kind of get away and don't look right at him, you know? But you knew who they were. And sometimes when I tell this story, I like to give him a name because it'll give him a name. Such a great story. So I call him Bob, just to let you know. This is Bob, all right? I love the story of Bob, okay? Because Bob, Bob is expressing everything that I think people express when they experience Jesus in an extremely powerful way, right? He's, he's physically healed. He stands. He leaps. He, he jumps. He's praising God. Like, it's, a, it's an extraordinary moment for Bob. And, and then just a quick note. I love this uh, little sidebar I wrote in. You know what? Just as just an encouragement to us, like don't ever get stuck when you're in conversations with people because you can't give them what they want. Don't ever get stuck because you can't answer the questions that they have. Don't ever get stuck because they want they want something that you just can't give them. You don't have it. Don't don't get stuck there. Why? Because you will always be able to give them something they truly need. You will always be able to give them Jesus. You will always be able to give them absolute hope. You will always be able to give them something of value. Don't don't get stuck when you can't necessarily meet a temporary need. I I love that about Peter and John. Of course, you know, you can't give an opportunity to Peter like this, right? He sees the opportunity and he addresses the crowd, the whole crowd, people of Israel. What is so surprising about this? Like he doesn't know. That's a good setup question, right? Oh, hello, you know? Now everyone's looking at me. Why stare at us as though we made this man walk of our own power and godliness? Great question. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. So they quickly helped the Jewish people there understand it's the same God you've been, you're here to worship and pray to through his servant Jesus by doing this. And I love this. It's the same Jesus who you handed over and rejected before Pilate despite Pilate's decision to release him, right? You rejected his holy, righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. I don't know if that was just Peter trying to be a little bit of, you know, you guys are like, you know what you did. But he does go on to say, look, you killed the author of life, but God raised him up from the dead. Again, that's the message that they're sharing. God raised him up from the dead and we are witnesses of this fact, you know, you can't tell me it didn't happen. We saw it. We were there. We saw him die. We saw him raised from the dead. Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed. And you know how crippled he was before. You know what he looked like. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. And what I love about this particular passage is just understand this. It was not, it was not Bob's faith in Jesus that healed him. Everybody with me? He didn't get saved first. It was Peter and John's faith in Jesus 
that healed Bob. Just, just make sure you understand that. Again, I told you before, it doesn't require consensus for someone to believe the Bible is the Word of God for the Bible to be the Word of God and to do the work that it's called to do. It is the faith that Peter and John had in Jesus Christ that helped Bob experience this miracle. It wasn't Bob, but they didn't first teach the gospel to Bob so that Bob could get saved and understand all the tenets of faith so that he could experience a healing. I had a great conversation over the past week with, with a guy who has a very similar faith story. Like He was healed of leukemia, or at least a, 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 a version of leukemia, that he was absolutely convinced was going to kill him. And he was healed of it before he came to faith. Like before he actually came to understand who Jesus was, he experienced a healing in his life. And he can't explain it. Very similar, you see this with Bob. He didn't, he didn't come to faith first, that's what it is. So when I start talking about this idea of undeniability, like this undeniable part and experience of your life, understand, undeniable is irrefutable. Now, I say irrefutable, meaning that, that it's irrefutable from the standpoint. Now, you could, people don't have to agree with you. They don't have to agree. But it, but it can't become uh, uh, what we would term relativism, which is what the culture wants to do. It wants to take what is irrefutable, because listen, when it's irrefutable, what are you going to say? Like, you know, I don't know how that's, what, what, I don't know what trick they're pulling. That can't possibly be the case. You know, nobody sits in, a, in, a, in the stands at a, a Major League Baseball game and sees fastballs get hit and go, nope, that didn't happen. Nope, 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 nope. The undeniable is irrefutable even if someone calls you a liar and doesn't want to believe you, it's still true. Which is why the relativism and arguments that people, the culture has tried to do in conversations with you and conversations with Christians, well, that's true for you. You guys heard that before? Nod your head. Oh, that's true for you. That's what your Bible says. That's true for you. And the reality is at some point you're going to have to say, well, that's true for me. That's true. But it's also just true. Right? And you're right. It is true for me. It's true for you too. This isn't a relative conversation or leaning in. This isn't a past to lean into relativism. This is the irrefutable and undeniable experience that everyone witnessed whether they wanted to agree with how it happened or not. Matter of fact, this is what you begin to see right now with the leaders of the, of the synagogue and the temple. It says, Peter and John were speaking to the people. They were confronted by the priests and the captain of the temple guard and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people through Jesus that there's resurrection from the dead because that was ultimately their message. Jesus was raised from the dead. Now you can be raised from the dead. They arrested them. And since it was already evening, they put them in jail to the morning. But many of the people who had heard the message already believed it. So the number of men who believed it were now totaling about 5,000. The reason I left this in here is just, just for you to see one of the reasons they were so bothered, one of the reasons they were so disturbed is because there was, a, there was like a, a, a movement happening. There was a, there was a large crowd. They only measured the men, but it was men, women, children, everything in terms of what, what they saw happening in the temple and what they saw happening in the city was that there was this pretty big momentum happening. And so they were upset about it. The next day, the council of the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. And, and the high priest was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and some of the other relatives of the high priest. So the whole, the whole like, gaggle was there. And they brought in the two disciples, and they demanded, hey, by what power or whose name 
Have you done this? So you see already that they just want the explanation, right? Explain to us how this happened. What trickery did you pull? What, 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 you know, what, what happened? What, what did you do? What have you, you know, what's going on? You need to explain this to us. And if you go on to read the verses ahead, the verses that Luke shares with us, you see they basically explain the same thing they explained to the people. Well, well, well it's an undeniable thing, guys. Who is it? Who's the name? It's Jesus. That's right, it's Jesus. You remember Jesus, right? Who was it? It's Jesus. And you killed him. And you forsaken him. And God raised him. And we're witnesses. And he's in heaven now. He's going to be back, by the way, pretty soon. At least that's what they thought. You know, God raised him. He's coming back. You say, you better say you're sorry. That was basically, Peter had the same message for about 40 years. He said, you know, that's, that's what happened. And what happened, what you're seeing is transformation. You're seeing the people of God come alive. You're seeing death come to life. You're seeing resurrection. You're seeing healings. You're seeing Bob. Bob got healed. Like, that's part of why this happened. Bob was healed. But who knows? I mean, Peter could have shared his story. You don't have to be lame from birth to have a story. Peter could have just shared his story. Look, I was a fisherman. I was just this guy. I was sitting there fishing, and this guy came over to me. I wasn't catching anything, and it was a horrible day. And I came to the shore, and the guy was like, let's go fishing. And I was like, blah, 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 whatever. Let's go fishing, you know? So he takes me out there as if he knows something, and I'm the professional fisherman. He doesn't know anything. And he says, you know, cast your net. And I cast the net, and there was nothing. And I told him, see, nothing. It was a horrible day. I want to go back home, get drunk, and do whatever. And Jesus said, great, now cast it on the other side. And there was so much fish that they had to take several boats just to get all the fish back to the shore. And from that point forward, Jesus, Peter's like, I surrendered my life to Christ. I followed him. Like, he, he doesn't have to have Bob's story to share an undeniable thing of what happened. My life was changed. Oh, did I screw up a ton? I screwed up even last week, two weeks ago. You know, I was the worst screw up. I denied him. At his, at, his, at his crucifixion. Peter, undeniable change. Undeniable transformation. Who is it? Jesus. What happened? Change. He changed everything. Changing everything. That's what happened. Well, it goes on. The guys are like, the members of the council were amazed because they saw the boldness of Peter and John. And they could see that they were, just read those two words out loud. I love these words. Ordinary men. Right? They're not anything special. They're not the lawgivers. They're not the Sadducees. They're not the Pharisees. They're not, they're not pastors. They're not priests. They're not, you know, they're not leaders of any kind. They're just dudes. They're just normal, everyday, average Joes. And they know that. They see it. And yet they're, they're amazed by the boldness of them because it was so undeniable. And they also saw there was no special training in the scriptures. Again, they had the Old Testament scrolls. I mean, these guys knew the Old Testament. But, but G- Peter and John didn't go in and say, well, you remember back in Genesis 12 where it said this? You remember back, you know, where Abraham, like they didn't go in and try to like figure out and change all the, you know, show them how they're wrong they were based on scripture. They just said, look, there's no special training in this. These are ordinary guys. But they also recognized them as people who had been with Jesus. And that's a big deal. Because they were with him. (laughs) And I love this. But since they could see the man, 
who'd been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say, right? There was nothing they could say. Why? Because of Bob, right? Undeniable. And I don't, I, I don't buy it. Luke says he was standing there, but I, I picture like a kid, like, you know, because you know, kids can't stand still, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're always moving and doing something. And that's what I, I mean, imagine your legs for 40 years didn't work. What would you be doing? Yeah, parkour in the temple, that's what you'd be doing, right? That's what you'd be doing. He says, you know, we, we, we want to say something. Look at the boldness of these guys. They're going against what we say, but it's undeniable. It's undeniable not only for Peter and John, but now because we see Bob, there's nothing they could say. When, when, when the unexplainable creates this death loop, I just want you to understand, the undeniable is definitive. It's definitive, okay? I'm not saying definitive as in like you win, you know, because this isn't about winning arguments. I'm saying definitive as in when you share about your personal faith, about who Jesus is to you, when you share what he has done in your life, it is the period in the sentence, okay? It isn't, it isn't some circle to just go round and round and round about. It's what it is. And again, they don't have to believe it. They don't have to, you know, they can have all the other excuses and arguments, but it is so definitive for you to be able to engage in your story. Because you know who Jesus is. And you know what happened. You know what happened. He died. He, 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 he was risen from the dead. Mark, Matthew saw it. Peter and Mark saw it through Mark. Luke, eyewitnesses all over the place, they, you know, wrote about all the eyewitnesses and interviewed them and wrote about it. Account for us. John saw it. James saw it. 500 witnesses saw it. The world was turned upside down long before the Bible was ever fully put together. Hundreds of years. Because of they were witness to what happened. And you're a witness to what happened in you. It's definitive. you got to lean in to the undeniable when Christ is Lord of your life. Keep going. What should we do with these guys? They asked each other. Look, we can't deny that they performed this miraculous sign. Everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading the propaganda, like we can't have the message heard, we got to control the narrative, right? Further, we got to warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. So they called the apostles in and commanded them never again to speak and teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John said, look, do you, do you think God wants us to, to obey you rather than him? Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? Now, let me just leave this up here for a second because I'll, I'll say a little quick note. Um, and I have to be careful not to filter my words when I say this. But I get really frustrated, especially in today's kind of modern, uh, politicalized church culture, when people use verses like this to try to talk about, like, not complying and standing against the government and so forth. So like, like, well, what do you think? God wants us to obey you like, like the government or obey God? Do not use this verse out of context, all right? This verse, these guys were being told they could not speak the name of Jesus at all. 
And if someone tells you you can't talk about Jesus, then you can say this. You ever with me? Nod your head? Yeah? Okay, you can't use this on your taxes. That's all I'm saying. All right? This, this is not a loophole for you. This is these guys responding to the fact that he goes, he tells them, he says, I can, what do you think you want us to do? We can't stop telling people about everything we've seen and heard. This is an undeniable experience in our life. We can't stop. How are you going to stop that? You can't stop that. And I love the fact that he goes on to say, <laughs> the council then threatened them further because that's all they could do. But they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. Because everybody was praising God. Why was everybody praising God? You guys remember? Yeah. Because the miraculous sign of healing the man who'd been lame for more than 40 years. Because of Bob. Right? They're all praising God. Why? Because he's still there. It's the next day. Bob's in the corner doing jumping jacks. And they're all praising God. Because there was a miracle. It was, it was undeniable. I think the tension that we feel is that every day we make the choice to live as Christ is the Lord of our life. And sometimes we just don't do it. We, we live as if we're the Lord of our life. We live... We live as if, you know, the stuff around us is in control and Lord of our life. Which is why sometimes we don't feel that there's a remarkable difference in our lives. But I can promise you, when you are living as Christ is Lord of your life, you know without a shadow of a doubt. Okay, you, you know the person you once were, that you're not anymore. It's undeniable. You know the person you still are down deep inside. People will look at me sometimes and be like, well, Matt, you're a preacher. You don't worry about those things. You don't struggle with those things. <laughs> Bull. You don't know me. You don't know the selfishness and carnal desires that still reside in me, that I still have to fight just like you do that I don't live out of my selfishness, that I don't live out of my, my, my human nature, that I don't live out of the things that I don't want to serve people, right? I want to be served. I don't want to live for anything beyond me. I want to live for me. Like, I know that there's, listen, I tell people that sometimes, people, eh, whatever. I'm telling you, there's nothing good about me other than Jesus. Nothing. I mean, I got, he gave me a loud voice, but I don't have to use it for preaching. Right? I can use it for a lot of other things. I could be an announcer in the WWF or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> like there's, when you live as Christ as Lord of your life, you get a really clear picture. Again, this goes back to last week about the mercy of God who's taken away your shame and your guilt and the conviction of sin. And he's given you grace and hope and life. And there's an undeniable part of my story that I wish I could explain to people. I wish. I wish I could do a better job with my words of describing just how much Jesus means to me. But sometimes, because I can't, 
I just have to lean into my undeniable personal transformation. You know, I'll, I'll tell people. I'll go through the list. I'll be like, guys, he's the only way. What, how else would I choose? What else would I choose? Where else am I going to go? As Peter said to Jesus, you're the, you're the way to life. You're the author of life. You've taken my sin and you've canceled my debt because of what you did for me. Not because of something I did. I can't boast about that. It's the grace of Jesus. And, and, and I don't want to get stuck in the unexplainable. I want to move to the undeniable. That there's an undeniable transformation in my life. And not like it, like it happened. And, I mean, it's happening every day. Undeniable transformative power of Jesus in me. Because he's called me to be prepared to share the good news. And to have that reason and that, that the answer to why I choose to live with him as Lord of my life. Now, as a church, we have a mission statement. It's very similar to our, our mission statement. It fuels our mission statement. So our mission statement is like we want to humbly point. We exist to humbly point everyone to absolute hope. But our mission statement is specifically to the people who are partners in our church. Look, we are the transformed people of God who want to see our friends' lives change. That's why we talk about our top five and our circle. Like, who are the people that we can put names with faces and we're praying for that we want to see their lives changed by Jesus, by the absolute hope of Jesus? This comes from, this is the verse that fuels our mission statement. It says, we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. And at one time, we even thought of Christ simply from a human point of view. But oh, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Transformation. The old life's gone, the new life's begun. It's a gift from God. We can't boast about it. It's not the greatest idea I ever had. Like, it's him. And he brought us back to himself through Christ. And now God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. That's our job. That's our task. To help reconcile people back to God. Do you feel prepared to do that? Do you feel that you are prepared to not just share the good news of how much Jesus loves them and he's the only way and this grace and mercy is available to them, but are you prepared to share your undeniable experience with Christ? That's got to be a part of your apologetics. That's got to be a part of your defense and your reason why he's the Lord of your life. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much um, that, that everyone who calls upon your name gets to have an undeniable personal transformation a life that you are continually changing and renewing as we lean into your word, as you teach and rebuke and correct and train us and prepare us for the task that we've been given. God, I wish I could. I wish I could explain every question that people have. I wish I had an answer for every one of the things that people get hung up on and stuck on that's unexplainable. But God, I... I and I wish I had a better way of communicating just how broken I am and then how much I mean it when I say nothing good is in me 
apart from you. Jesus, today as our church gathers and as your church around the world gathers, may you continue to prepare us to share the good news and the reason why we need you as Lord of our life. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.